this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're continuing to introduce listeners to some of the content from our new series, The Next Tsunami and Diabetes, Getting Ahead of the Rising Tide, which is targeted at frontline treaters of patients living with type 2 diabetes, obesity, or other metabolic diseases. Unlike The Next Tsunami, which is published through Buzzsprout and distributed through Apple, Spotify, Google, and an array of distributors, Rising Tide is a subscription-only podcast, which means you need to provide identifying information about yourself to access the podcast. The challenge is that Nash Tsunami listeners keep asking me, so how do I get to hear Rising Tide to decide whether I would like to subscribe or not? Some ask because they're physician specialists looking for ways to educate treaters in their communities or institutions. Some listen because they're frontline treaters who stumbled on Rising Tide and like the idea of it. And a third group consists of commercial executives and drug device or diagnostic companies or clinical trial or site management organizations, all of whom view this podcast as a possible place to advertise or sponsor episodes. If you're one of those people, this conversation is for you. This weekend, we are sharing a conversation length cut from each of our previous Rising Tide episodes that you can access without getting into the series. Three of these will be from last year, and one will be from this year's first episode. Our final Vols episode will come from our initial introduction to Jeff Lazarus and the idea of global clinical care pathways in global public health. Last year, our first episode focused on some of the research that was increasing public awareness of NASH and its staggering future impact on morbidity and mortality, quality of life, and economics of care. This conversation comes from that episode and shares feedback from Rising Tide co-host Dr. Kenneth Cousy, who you may know from several previous appearances on Surfing the National Tsunami. Ken is discussing several studies from him and other authors looking at the overall prevalence of NAFLD and NASH, and more striking, the high prevalence among patients sitting in primary care and endocrinology practice waiting rooms. As he leads this part of the discussion, you'll hear comments from our co-founder, Dr. Stephen Harrison, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader, Dr. Kathleen Corey, and translational scientist, Dr. Kay Pepin, who works with Resoundant and has an appointment at Mayo Clinic. If you like this conversation, Listen after the content portion ends. I will discuss how you can subscribe free of charge to the Rising Tide series. The conversation itself covers some territory we've never discussed on Nash Tsunami and places other content in a different context. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, enroll in the Rising Tide series and join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Ken, let's move on to you and let's let's hone in a little more on a, on a diabetic population, okay? Ken Cousy. Well, that's the point I wanted to make to Steve. I, I found this paper fantastic because it just shows the big gap between people with diabetes and metabolic syndrome and the rest. It almost doubles your risk of having uh, NASH or, or probably fibrosis, although the group of people with diabetes wasn't that big. I mean, but this is such a landmark study because I think among all the people they want to do more systematic screening, probably people with diabetes, particularly if they have obesity and metabolic syndrome, the risk of NASH is very high. I think Steve has provided the first really valid NASH data because studies have been steatosis, which is about 70%, but and then fibrosis, we don't know what's brewing. And I think knowing from the study of Steve, I mean, and hopefully he'll enlarge his database and follow them, is that, that there's a lot of disease activity that endocrinologists don't even think about. And I, I think as we treat diabetes as an endocrinologist, if we chose medication that can turn off this pro-fibrogenic environment, I mean, we would probably do a lot of good 
product to our people. So my interest has been in the, in recent years, basically in two areas. One, treatment. And we did that first study with Steve. I've been looking at treatments and I think we've made some progress with our current diabetes medications and a lot of new drugs in the pipeline. But more importantly, the second thing that came from that is that we need to find these people because hepatologists are just getting them at the end of the road. So the thing is how to do that. And for a long time, I've been saying that we have to screen for this in the same way that we do for kidney disease and retinopathy in people with diabetes. But true is that we don't have the evidence. But I think that the evidence from studies like from Steve, also Kathleen has done a lot of good work looking at the cardiovascular component of this. I think that it's time to be bold and move on to screening. And and we published two small studies last year that looked into this a little bit. And they're along the line of what Steve has shown. Because Steve, you mentioned that the rate of NASH was like 46, 50% in people with diabetes and metabolic risk factors? That's correct, yeah. So this is a lot of bad things happening. A lot of these people continue to gain weight, continue to have their diabetes poorly controlled. Probably these are all factors that kind of drive fibrosis down the line. So we did, a, for example, we did an NHANE study that we published in obesity. The first author was one of our faculty, Dr. Barb. That included 800 plus people with type 2 diabetes in which we did a very basic study using diagnostic panels for steatosis, which just showed that if you have diabetes, even in the overweight range, your rate of steatosis and fibrosis nearly doubles. And as you keep gaining weight, going from 30 BMI or 30 to 35, all the way to above 40, it just rapidly, most people would have steatosis. And I'm sure there's a lot of people with NASH, as Steve has so elegantly showed. That is uh, a small piece of evidence that adds to not only obesity, but diabetes seems to double your risk of fibrosis. And then the other area where I've always struggled is convincing my peers. I've given a lot of talks to my peers. They do such a good job taking care of so many metabolic and conditions, they're pretty busy. And it's hard to convince them that under their radar, they have NASH and bad liver disease developing. So we did a study in, at the University of Florida where we screened people from family, about 600 people, more or less divided equally between family medicine, general internal medicine, and our own endocrine clinic. This is a study we just used FibroScan just to make the point to know what is the real prevalence of fibrosis. If you just did a FibroScan in the clinic, people with diabetes going for their regular follow-up, they should have never been tested before for fatty liver or had any, of course, biopsy or been told. So these are people who are completely unaware, both their doctors and the patients. And again, the number, the prevalence of steatosis was pretty much in line with studies done before with FibroScan across the world and Europe and Hong Kong and, and whatever, and with Steve's numbers. But again, the rate of fibrosis was, you know, any fibrosis, if you take, you know, with the limitations of a FibroScan of seven and above was about 20%, 21%, and F2 was about 15%. And again, FibroScan has its limitations, say area under the curve is about 0.8, but it does tell you that at least more than 10% of people with obesity 
and long-standing diabetes have fibrosis. Now, the one thing that we have now, we're going to be presenting in Barcelona, Roger, this week is that we now looked at the prevalence of fibrosis more carefully across clinics. And guess what? It's the endocrine clinic that has twice the rate of fibrosis compared to primary, to general internal medicine or, or family medicine. So we get them later on in the disease and when they've had more time probably for an organ uh, damage, uh, they, we, we get them with more retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, and probably some of that has to do with why they have more fibrosis. So this is an early, pretty simple study, but it all comes back that I think that the ADA, I'm trying to have them screen routinely all people with type 2 diabetes. So so we're using FIV4 that has a very low sensitivity, but has a reasonable specificity to at least begin getting the people with at, 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 at level of F3 or before they have decompensated cirrhosis and Steve and Kathleen can do anything about it. So I hope that that's going to be replaced with, with better biomarkers in development or probably imaging moving down. But again, there's cost effectiveness analysis. But FIB4, the role will be basically to develop a muscle for screening and, and hopefully be replaced later on for a version two of some test that will be cost effective. So I just want to say that. Can, can I interrupt and just ask you, one of the things that I think I always question as an internal medicine physician and as a hepatologist is, and I've been meaning to ask you this for a while, so I'll just ask it to you now. Does the length of time a patient is diabetic or the severity of their HbA1c have any impact on NASH severity at all? So, you know, a guy that's been a diabetic for five years, knowing that they are pre-diabetic sometimes for a decade before they become diabetic, but just as the length of time, is a five-year diabetic less risk of NASH and NASH severity than a 15 or 20-year diabetic? And is an A1C of 15 give you worse disease than an A1C of six and a half? Well, I've been trying to answer that for 15 years, Steve, and I can tell you that I don't know. <laughs> so intuitively, you would say yes, of course, but the evidence is is not there. So duration of diabetes, we looked at this and we couldn't see at least people with less than 10 years or greater than 10 years, we couldn't see a difference. The real problem is, as you know, diabetes is so subtle. Some studies say it takes people seven years to be diagnosed uh, with diabetes. So I, the patients don't remember. They tell you, when, well, 20 years, but it could be 10, it could be 30. So duration of diabetes, I'm sure, has to be a factor, but we have not been able to generate good data for that. The second factor can be that maybe glucose is not the real problem. So glucose, there's a lot of hyperglycemia, glycosylation of proteins. There's a lot of harm to many tissues. Um, but we have looked at several in our database and others. And in this paper that we published in, in obesity, and we don't see a strong, there is a trend, but we don't see a very strong correlation with fibrosis. I mean, I've seen some papers that have shown some of that or postprandial hyperglycemia, but the reality, it's not a clear signal. So this leads me to think that although it probably is a factor, probably insulin resistance and is the greatest factor, which people have since probably they're born. 
or when they gain weight in their 20s. So I probably, I would say that most of the harm comes from factors related to insulin resistance, as broad as that is, and not even the degree of steatosis, because you know, we published that. So I thought, well, if you have 30% fat instead of 6%, it has to be, but there's like, like a threat. Once you hit this 8 to 10% fat, there's enough fat for probably the person genetically predisposed to develop NASH and fibrosis to be enough. So we didn't see that if you went from 15, so for the audience, you shouldn't have more than 5% fat in your liver. So the typical person with diabetes is 15 to 20%. So we said, well, if you get somebody who's 15% and put him at 2%, they're going to do, they're cured, but we, we haven't seen that really. And I know there's some debate about, about these thresholds, but not a clear signal. So we have a lot to learn. So one final question based on what you just told me. If, if I have a patient in my clinic with diabetic retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, does that put them at higher risk of NASH and advanced fibrosis compared to a diabetic without any of those comorbidities? Intuitively, I would say yes. Now, we are doing an NIH study in a 1,000 people, which we have recruited two-thirds of it, and I will tell you at the end of that. There are some studies from some people, uh, like in Europe, that suggest that that's the case, but, but it's kind of, there's a lot of confounders. But Probably yes, but I'm not sure. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Other, other questions for Ken, or should we move on? Yeah, Kay Pepin. I have, I have one comment, I guess. Ken, one of the things you said that was really striking to me was if we think about 15% of diabetic patients that might have fibrosis and how many diabetic patients there are in the world, that's a lot of people. And if we can even identify a subset of those who don't have to go on to develop cirrhosis, that would decrease the burden on the health system, both for the hepatitis but also decrease the number of really awful stories we hear about patients saying, I didn't even know my liver was unhealthy until it was too late. So getting that message out there and truly having a positive effect, even on a subset of those patients by screening with something as simple as Fib4 would just be amazing. If you think about it, in the United States, 30 million people probably with type 2 diabetes, 15% makes it almost 5 million. So if you have, we think, at least six 7% with F3, F4, there's a lot that can be done. For example, the other day, there was a person diagnosed with F3 by a colleague and just told him, oh, come back in a year, lose some weight. When there are medications like GLP-1 receptor agonists and pyoglitazone that could probably help them, you know, at least delay that uh, end-stage liver disease. And certainly they would warrant consideration of screening for liver cancer. So, you know, other things that would change how you manage that F3 patient. Wow, that's that's an interesting story. <laughs> interesting is an interesting word, Kathleen. I, I, I think remarkably neutral and well-nuanced. Well Ken, the only other thing that strikes me same thing as someone Stephen was talking about. If none of the things that are obviously predictive of which of the 30 million diabetics are more likely to be in trouble, then it kind of says you have to screen everybody, doesn't it? Uh, I've been proposing, I, the first time I proposed that was in 2008. But some say if you fulfill your dreams in a lifetime, you're not dreaming big enough. But I'm sure that in the next two years, we're going to get some screening for our people with diabetes. That's my next effort. Stephen Harrison. Ken, if you ain't dead, you ain't dead. Done. Keep trying. <laughs> I like that. Thanks. I'll try to stay alive. And now back to Roger. 
I hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you want to subscribe to Rising Tide, simply go to the surfingnash.com homepage, click the Rising Tide link on the top banner. You'll go to a page that offers two ways to subscribe. And whether you choose the one episode or full experience option, you will become a subscriber. And if you want to learn more about sponsorship, just contact me directly at roger.green at surfingnash.com. We'll be back to our traditional Nash Tsunami format next week to discuss pediatric and adolescent NAFLD and Nash with three guests, our friend Naeem Alkori and two first-timers, Drs. Rohit Kohli and Miriam Voss. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.